Good morning. Good morning. So I have really enjoyed, I have to say, um, over the last month or so, uh, diving into the book of Jonah, if you'll excuse the little pun. And I've, I've also enjoyed our speakers over the last month. So let's see if this works. Um, we've, um, we've looked at a God who calls, so Jack kicked us off. Um, uh, about four weeks ago, looking at the call of God to reluctant evangelist. We looked at a God who pursues. Uh, Joanna sort of took us through that, God's presence with the disobedient. We looked at a God who saves the response of God to the distress, uh, and Graham took us through that. And then just last week, Sarah focused on a God who requires repentance, the grace of God for all nations. And this morning, my title is A God of Eternity, The Concern of God for the Future. And we're focusing on Jonah chapter 4. Uh, and when we agreed uh, who would speak on what, I have to say, um, I, I maybe felt that once again I got the short straw. Because uh, Jonah chapter 4 is, is kind of the bit they normally leave out in Sunday school, isn't it? You know, maybe when you, you, you know, read the or listen to Graham reading there, uh, you might have been surprised. You might not have recognised that bit of Jonah. Um, some of you are probably thinking, yeah, I remember the fish bit, but not, not this plant bit. Um, and uh, maybe some of you are thinking, you know, actually I can get my head around sort of Jonah being swallowed by the f- a big fish, a whale or something like that, you know, could probably fit in. But God just sending a plant um, or along that grew up in a day and then sending a worm to eat the plant. You know, this story is getting a little bit uh, crazy. Um, well, if you think it's a bit far-fetched, you're not alone. So you can turn to the person beside you and say, you're not alone. <laughs> um, because uh, Martin Luther, many years ago, said um, that the story of Jonah was almost incredible, uh, sounding more strange than any poet's fable. If it were not in the Bible, I should take it for a lie. So, so there we go. I mean, as we've heard from uh, Joanna and Graham, the book of Jonah is actually quite a sophisticated piece of literature. So it's, it's short. It's only four chapters. The author doesn't waste a lot of words. It's very concise, just like this point. Um, it's also symmetrical. Um, Joanna, you mentioned, was it this schisms? Or- Chiasms, yeah, where the, you know, the, the, the words sort of pointed into what was right in the middle to make the, the point. Uh, and Tim Keller, in his uh, book um, on Jonah, the prodigal prophet, um, outlines just some of the, the symmetry around the stories of Jonah. And I was fascinated because I hadn't really noticed this before. So the first scene in Jonah is about Jonah, the pagans in the sea, chapter 1 and 2. The second is Jonah, the pagans in the city, chapter 3 and 4. And if you just look at the symmetry between the verses, it's amazing. You know, verse 1 in chapter 1, God's God's word comes to Jonah. It's exactly the same in in chapter 3. The message to be conveyed is is, is verse 2. And then the response of Jonah is verse 3 in both chapters. So Jonah and God's word. And then the second chunk is about Jonah and God's world. So verse 4, the word of warning. Verse 5, the response of the pagans. So in in chapter 1, that's the the sailors. Chapter uh, 3, it's the city of Nineveh. And then chapter 6 is the response of the pagan leader. So chapter 1, it's the captain of the ship. Chapter 3, it's the, the king of Nineveh. And then from verse 7 onwards, it's the pagan's response on how that's actually ultimately better than Jonah's response. So Jonah and God's world. And then this just leads into the main thrust of Jonah, which is about God's grace. And chapter 2 is all about how God taught grace to Jonah through the fish. And chapter 4 is about how God uh, taught grace to Jonah through the plant. 
So it's quite symmetrical. Um, it's also surprising. Uh, Jonah's t- contains quite a number of shocks to the Israelite readers reading it. Let me just highlight a few. So right at the beginning, we have a prophet who runs away from his God. And that is pretty shocking. So you can do your best shocked face. Remember I said I was going to be trying to be more interactive? I need to see a shocked face. So it's a prophet who runs away from his God. Prophets of God don't run away from God, do they? And certainly not established prophets like Jonah. So actually we, we read about Jonah in, in Kings, 2 Kings 14.25. It talks about some of his fulfilled prophecies. So we can assume and scholars believe that Jonah was quite an established prophet. And, and right at the beginning, Jonah 1 verse 1, it says, The word of God, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. That's the kind of familiar, pat, familiar pattern for introducing established prophets in the Bible. So the first couple of verses would have had an Israelite reader very comfortable. But then that shock comes, Jonah's running away from God. And then the rest of the chapter and the next are not about God dealing with the Ninevites. They're actually about God pursuing and dealing with Jonah himself. And that is shocking. And as we heard from Graham, the first person God shows mercy to in the book of Jonah is Jonah himself. And then we've Jonah going to Nineveh to preach against it. And the context, as you know, is Nineveh was a, a, a great city. And this is an artist's impression of Nineveh that's hanging up in the, um, the British Museum. It was one of the capitals of Assyria. Um, it had been great. Actually, scholars believe at the time of Jonah, it had slipped into a bit of decline. So it wasn't as great as it had been. Um, and actually, its greatest time was in a couple of generations after Jonah. Um, and it was a pretty evil city too. Uh, the prophet Nahum refers to Nineveh as a city of blood in Nineveh 3 verse 1. And the Assyrians were well known for their ruthless military tactics. Again, in the British Museum, there's a number of reliefs. This is probably from a couple of generations before Jonah, um, uh, showing sort of them besieging a city and archers and so on. So Jonah's... Um, Israelite readers would have recognized Nineveh as an enemy, one of their, their main enemies, and they wouldn't have been surprised that God was, was angry about Nineveh's wickedness. And when God calls Jonah to preach against Nineveh, they may well have been cheering, you know, if anyone deserves God's wrath and punishments, it's those Ninevites. But Nineveh repenting, that's another surprise in the book, you know. That would have, the, the readers just would have been bowled over uh, by that, and we'll come to that a bit later. It's also a book of greats. So chapter 1 centers around the great storm. And uh, the Hebrew word for great is this. Anyone have a go at pronouncing it? <laughs> How's your Hebrew? Okay, I'll give a clue. And, and let's, let's say after three, one, two, three, Godol. So that's the word for great, Godol. It's, you can see it's in the Old Testament 528 times. It uh, can sometimes be translated exceedingly or far more or large. It's generally translated great. And that was, uh, the storm was God's instrument for pursuing Jonah. And then chapter 2 is narrated from the great fish. Again, the Hebrew word Godol. God's instrument for rescuing Jonah. Chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh, the great city. Again, it's that Hebrew word, Gadol, and where God shows great mercy. And today, we come to chapter 4, which starts with Jonah's great anger. 
Again, it's that Hebrew word gadol. Jonah was greatly displeased, or or the NIV later uh, version translates it as, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. And that angry word is actually, you know, um, it can be translated evil. Um, Sorry, the the, the word very wrong can be translated evil. And the word angry can actually be translated rage. He flew into rage. He was incredibly angry. So Jonah thought what had happened was evil. And and what did he think was evil? Well, just the previous verse in chapter 3, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he threatened So couldn't Jonah have been angry and in a rage because God had not destroyed Nineveh? Well, let's read on. Verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. And here we have another surprise. Jonah talks about the reason he ran away in the first place. He knew what was likely to happen. He wasn't afraid of failure. He wasn't afraid of going into Nineveh preaching and nothing happened. Happening, I'd have probably been afraid of that. He wasn't afraid of this kind of cruel people maybe persecuting him, tormenting him, perhaps killing him. I'd have probably been afraid of that if God had told me to go and preach um, wrath to, to Nineveh. Um, but he, he was afraid because he knew what God was like. And if you were an Israelite, the next words would be very familiar. When God revealed himself to Moses, I don't know if you remember when Moses went up Mount Sinai the second time to get the second set of Ten Commandments, he asks to see God. And God said, I can't let you see all of me, it's too, it's too much for you, but I will show you my goodness and proclaim you my name. And we read in Exodus 34, God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. So Jonah knew who God is. He knew what God is like and he didn't like it. Why? Well, we don't know. It's one of the many unanswered questions in Jonah. But there's some hints. Do you notice back in chapter 1 how he introduced himself? He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land when he was talking to the, the sailors. So he starts with his nationality. I'm a Hebrew. And then he says he worships God, which actually he wasn't doing because he was doing the opposite of that. He was running away from God, disobeying God. Um, But I wonder if Jonah had broken the first commandment, if he put his nationality, his nationalism before his God. And he couldn't accept a God who would show mercy on Israel's enemy, the Ninevites. I wonder, do we ever do that? Do we put someone or something higher than God. I remember in university being introduced to a girl who um, was interested in faith but had some struggles and it transpired that her uh, uncle had been in the RAF and had died in an in a, um, airplane accident and the bottom line for her was that she just could not or would not believe in a God who could let something like that happen. Do we ever try and make God in our image? 
God is the great I am who I am. We sang some wonderful songs earlier just about God's character and his nature. God will never be who we want him to be. He will continue to surprise us with his love and mercy. Some of you may have heard of a lady called Corrie ten Boom. Um, she was an amazing lady who uh, was Dutch. Uh, who's, um, when she was a child, her family sheltered Jews um, during the Holocaust. And um, unfortunately, her family were, was arrested, taken to a concentration camp. Um, and miraculously, there was a clerical error, and she managed to survive the Holocaust. And uh, many years later, she was speaking at a conference on forgiveness. And uh, after the meeting, sort of lots of people come up to chat to her. And uh, out of the crowd came this prison guard. And she later said she was, that this prison guard was one of the worst that she knew at the concentration camp. And you can imagine what she saw there. And Corrie, um, uh, well, this, this man approached her, reached out his hand and asked, will you forgive me? And in this moment, you can just imagine the pain, the feelings, the images, the flashbacks that will just just come to her. And she later writes this, I stood there with coldness clutching at my heart, but I knew that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. I was not pleased to do this, so I prayed, Jesus, help me. Woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And when I did, I experienced an incredible thing. The current started in my shoulder, raced down into my arm and sprang into our clutched hands. This warm reconciliation seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with my whole heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. And note this, she says, I have never known the love of God as intensely as I did in that moment. One theologian called this the gift only an enemy can give us. The enemy is not thus merely a hurdle to be leaped on the way to God. The enemy can actually be the way to God. Not only do we have a role in transforming our enemies, but our enemies can also have a role in transforming us. As Christian Seema says, the Bible is a story of enemy love. God's love to us while we were still enemies And as we experience this love as it flows through us, past our grudges, past our hurts, past our hates, past our unforgiveness, it begins to click. This is the love that God has for us. This is what Jesus was talking about when he hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is what Paul was talking about when he said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But Jonah doesn't get it. He's still angry at God's mercy to Nineveh. And before we continue with our narrative, I've I've one question. How can Jonah be angry at this point? Did nothing really happen in the belly of the whale? Yeah, did did he not really repent there? 
After all, he said, Jonah 2.9, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And then when God actually brings salvation to Nineveh, he's not happy with it. What's, what's going on? Again, we don't know. It's another of Jonah's unanswered questions. We do know, though, that repentance isn't just a once-for-all thing. Jonah may have truly repented in the belly of the fish, but then, as Pete Gilbert says, things swerved to rot, and he went back to his old attitudes. We need to continually open ourselves to God's presence and align ourselves, realign ourselves to his priorities. So let's continue with our narrative. Verse 3, Jonah's suicidal, and it's a pretty big deal, and God responds with a question. In verse 4, is it right for you to be angry? That's so like God, isn't it? It's so gracious. You know, he, God could have been angry with Jonah. He could have put Jonah in his place. He could have said, Jonah, come on, you, that, that's not on. But instead, he graciously responds to Jonah with a question. Is it right for you to be angry? And then he goes on to illustrate the point. So, you know, Jonah goes to the east of of Nineveh. We don't quite know why. You would think if a lot of people have repented, he might have been there maybe helping them, you know, discipling them, pointing them. But no, he goes maybe because he thinks God might still destroy this city and he wants to see what happens. And um, God provides a, a leafy plant that gives Jonah some shade and his great uh, displeasure turns into great happiness, actually. It's the word Godol again. Um, and it's the only time in the book of Jonah we read about him being happy. And then God takes the plant away um, via the help of a worm. And he provides not only a scorching sun, but, but sort of an east wind. So Jonah's in a sauna. He's feeling faint. And once again, he's suicidal. And once again, God asks a question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah says, yes, it is. And for a third time, he wants to die. Tullian writes, he doesn't grasp God's grace. He doesn't trust God's ways. For Jonah, death offers more freedom than deference to God. Rather than give in to God, he wants to give up his earthly existence. And then God comes in with the punchline. It's all about concern. It's about mercy and compassion. The Lord says, you've been concerned about this plant. Actually, probably more about his comfort, to be honest. Although you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people, and who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Jonah may be a prophet of God, but he's missed the point and God is graciously revealing it to him again. It's about concern and compassion. And he's more concerned about his comfort and shade. And God is more concerned about the people of Nineveh, despite their evil and all their animals too. I really like it that they include the animals. That's good, isn't it? God's concern is for his whole creation. Um, uh, you know, everything. And our title today is God of Eternity, the Concern of God for the Future. And as Jonah pointed out, God's character is to have compassion on all people, to give them a hope and a future. But not Jonah. Jonah's angry that God's had compassion on Nineveh, most likely because he hated Nineveh and saw um, them as his enemy. We don't know why, but 
you know, maybe in a generation before, some of Nineveh's, uh, some of Jonah's parents, maybe some, some of his loved ones had been killed or, or tortured or whatever by the, the Ninevites. We don't know why he's so angry about them. But whatever was the case, he saw them as being beyond the pale, the pale, you know, just beyond, beyond salvation. Um, and this is, I think, the great irony of the story of Jonah. So we've got Jonah, a true blue Hebrew, thinking God shouldn't have compassion on the people of Nineveh. And in frustration, he quotes Exodus 34, 6, which we've just read, you know, God revealing his goodness, proclaiming his name. But just before that, actually, in, um, in Exodus 32, do you remember Israel had made a golden calf? And God was not happy with the people of Israel. In fact, God says, Exodus 32, verse 9, 10, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. So God is just about to pour out his wrath on the people of Israel. And what does Moses do? He intercedes for the people of Israel. He prays for them. And then God relents, verse 14 the Lord relented and did not bring uh, on his people the disaster he'd threatened. God had extended his mercy to Jonah's people, the people of Israel, and saved them. And to Jonah too, through the, through the great fish. But Jonah wasn't prepared to extend the same compassion to Nineveh. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, Jonah's heart remained hard. He allowed anger to fester and his heart grew hard. The God of eternity is reminding us this morning of his great compassion and telling us that it extends to everyone in this world, now and in the future, and to his whole creation. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has forgiven the inexcusable in us. So we get to do the same for others. So how does Jonah end? Well, there isn't really an ending. <laughs> Verses uh, 10 and 11, which we've read, you know, God's asked Jonah the question, but it isn't really answered. We don't know how Jonah responded, whether you know, he repented again and softened his heart, or whether he m- remained angry and refused to change and ended up living in anger and unhappiness. The story isn't all neat and packaged up. And that's... That's a bit like us, isn't it? It's a bit like real life. We don't have all the answers. Life isn't tied up in a nice bow. And we don't need to know how Jonah turned out in order to hear what God wants us to hear from this story. So, how do we apply this? I think there's a few areas that God wants us to to push into. The first is this. Be honest with God. We can commend Jonah for this. Actually, he was brutally honest with God. Part of our vision here at Three Counties Church is developing authentic relationships. And every time I've talked about that, I've always talked about it in the context of one another. You know, we want to be real with one another. We want to be honest and authentic. And actually, I was, as I was preparing for this talk, it really struck me that, that this also applies to God. We need to have an authentic relationship with God Even here in chapter 4, when Jonah was angry, we read that he prayed to God. He took that to God. I remember um, 
When I was working for Youth for Christ, I was on a team with a girl called Shauna, and I remember being shocked a few times when she shared about her honest prayer to God, telling him he didn't like things he was doing, telling him what she really thought. And I find it shocking for that to be verbalized in the prayer, and perhaps it was maybe the way I was brought up, and you know, it was, I was brought up in a more rigid, rules-based um, sort of church. And um, maybe I was keeping the outwardly visible rules but not being honest with God about my true feelings or motives. Actually, God can handle brutal honesty. We can't hide it from God anyway. And, and when you read, especially the Psalms, um, Job as well, I'm just listening to Job at the moment, there's so much honesty poured out. Um, a few weeks ago we shared communion and I read Paul's instructions from 1 Corinthians 11. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We need to examine ourselves. What are your real motives? What are your real feelings? Even if it's not pretty. And be honest with yourself and with God. And that's the place from where we need to start. So that's the first thing. Be honest with God. Second thing I think we want to push into is accept who God is. We touched on this earlier. Jonah wanted to fashion a God to his own liking. He wanted a God who would be compassionate to him and the Israelites, but not to his enemies, the Ninevites. And like my university contact, he just couldn't accept God as he is. God is the great I am who I am. His character and purposes do not change. Reminds me a little bit of the story of the uh, American aircraft carrier whose uh, captain noticed another vessel on the radar that was in its way and rated them to change course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. And the response came back, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. And that didn't please the captain. This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. And the response, no, I say again, you divert your course. And the captain got frustrated. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the US Atlantic fleet. I demand you change your course 15 degrees north. Our countermeasures will be taken to ensure the safety of this ship. And then the response came back. This is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> We've got to accept the God who is. He ain't changing C.S. Lewis says, my idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time and time again. And we know we've met with God when he shatters our preconceived ideas about him and reveals more and more of who he is. Accept the God who he is. The third thing is maintain a soft heart. Jonah's heart was hard. Despite God's compassion on him and his people, Jonah seemed to think the Ninevites were inexcusable. One of my good friends, Darren, lives up near Cambridge and has a bunch of uh, couples and families he's, he's friends with, some of whom are Christians and some aren't. And recently it came to light that one of the guys who, who isn't a Christian had been having an, an affair. Um, and he ended up deciding to beg forgiveness from his wife, and his wife eventually um, accepted him and, and said they'll work on, on, on a new start. They actually moved away from Cambridge somewhere else to kind of work on the relationship and have a new start. And um, Darren and his wife stayed in touch with them, but 
the other Christian couples cut off all contact with that couple and actually were quite annoyed with, with Darren being in touch, both with the wife as well as the husband. Um, and the hardness, when he shared that story a few weeks ago with me, just the hardness of their heart, the lack of compassion and grace just really shocked me. We need to be people of grace and mercy. People who forgive often. And then it struck me, how often do I have a hard heart? How often am I maybe hard and, and, and strict with my children, but yet make excuses with some of the stuff I do? Or how often you know, am I really compassionate towards the broken and hurting world around me that don't know Jesus? We need to cultivate a soft heart. And the final thing is this. We need to take shelter in God. Jonah had taken shelter in all the wrong places. In our rather surreal narrative this morning, his shelter was in a booth under a leafy plant. And that's what made him very, the word gadol again, very glad. And then God instructed, and actually the Hebrew word is literally numbered, a worm, to come and break his shelter and an east wind to oppress him. You know, God is willing to break the things that will eventually break us. God is willing to break the things that will eventually break us. He pursued Jonah in chapter 1 with a storm. And then he appointed actually the same word numbered, a fish, to rescue him and give him somewhere to think. God is willing to shatter our beliefs. In Jonah's case, it was his narrow view of God and his mercy. And this is evidence of God's pursuing grace. It's not God punishing Jonah. When he pursues us, it's not him punishing us. It's evidence of his kindness. What are you taking shelter in this morning? It might be your status. It might be your family. It might be your friends. It might be money. It might be sport. It might be possessions. David says in Psalm 61... I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. And let's ask God to speak. We're all in different places. And God's word to each of us might be quite different. But just as I was praying, preparing, I I, I wondered if some of you this morning are in a storm. It might be a storm of God's pursuing Or maybe just one of the normal storms of life. But you need to firmly place your shelter in God. What are you taking shelter in? Maybe some of you this morning have realized that your heart has been growing hard. God wants to soften it this morning. He wants to begin that process of softening your heart. As you open yourself once again to him. Shall we just stand for a minute? Holy Spirit, we invite you to come this morning. Would you come and speak to us? Would you come and minister to us? Lord, we thank you for the revelation this morning of who you are. That you are gracious and compassionate. You surprise us, you astound us with your mercy, the depth of your love for us. You pursue us 
You love us so much, you are willing to break the things that will eventually break us. This morning we just want to open ourselves to you. Holy Spirit, come. Where you need to bring comfort, bring comfort. Where there's healing required, bring healing. Where you need to break inaccurate pictures of you, would you break those? Where you need to till hard soil to break it up, Lord, would you do that this morning?